0: a.m. Lord, just give us the clarity of thought and uh, the spiritual insight in order to hear from you this morning. Uh, Lord, I just thank you so much for BCC and for the opportunity uh, to come here and to know other men and to sharpen iron with iron. Lord, bless our meeting this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Check. Yeah, there we go. Okay, cool. Um, So Sunday night, we had to put our dog, Biko, 13-year-old lab, we had to put him down to rest. Uh, And he had pretty much spent every day of his life. And when you go through times like that, you ponder these questions. And it doesn't matter kind of the nature of the life involved, whether it's a dog or a person. You have to face this thing called death, and it makes you wonder. Um, did he know, I was wondering, you know, did he know what death is? Does he know what happens after? Do you know what's happening to him? Uh, and it's easy to be strong in the moments when that's not real to you. Uh, but when it is real, it's a different story. And you begin searching for truths that you didn't think you needed to think about as much. And so uh, this, this going through this with my, my dog brought back this memory, this memory um, for me. And I don't know if you ever, any of you experienced this. But it's when I first learned that I was going to die. Do you all have a memory of that? I, I actually do. My, my, my brothers had um, told me, I was a little kid, obviously, uh, one of my brothers had said, yeah, you're going to die. And I was like, no way. And I ran to my mom, and I'm, I'm like, Mom, this isn't fair. You know, Clark or Scott, I can't remember which one. They said, I'm going to die. That can't be true, right, Mom? And, and go tell them they're wrong. She looked at me rather matter-of-factly and said, no, dear, you're gonna die. Uh, I'm sure there are words after that, but they, they fell on deaf ears. I was gonna die, something. So, something changed in that moment. Um, there, in all of that, there was this sense of the beginning of a loss of innocence, of that childlike innocence, right? Um, and I used to begin to focus on things that happen when you're thinking this is all there is. Um, why am I talking about that? Um, well, because that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to be looking at verse, so again, it's a lot of text. It's in Luke 18, 15 is where we're going to start. We're going to go through 19-something, okay? We'll see how far we get. Um, but what we're going to see in all of this is this, this overarching theme uh, that I see in these verses that Jesus is talking about that's headlined by the very first, um, the very first passage that we're going to look at. <coughs> Okay, so let's just go ahead and, and we're gonna, um, because as we look at these verses, we're going to see what Jesus says about being childlike, and, and and hopefully we'll see why we need to let go of our maturity sometimes, and seek out who we are were before we became who we are, if that makes sense. So it begins with this, um, on Luke 18, 15 through 17, and they were bringing even their babies to him, so that he would touch them, and went but when the disciples saw it they began rebuking them but jesus called for them saying permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of god belongs to such as these truly i say to you whoever does not receive the kingdom of god like a child will not enter it into it at all so this notion this idea of being childlike again i said in many ways i think sets a theme for the entire section of luke's gospel that we're going to look at today there's a lot of th- stuff in there but this is the one i want to focus on And what we'll see in a series of examples that demonstrate what it does and does not look like to be childlike in our faith. Um, But before we go there, I think we need to talk a little bit about what it means to be childlike, or more simply, what children are like. And uh, I'm going to submit that there are five characteristics that I think are at play here. What does it mean to be like a child? First of all, children are vulnerable and dependent. They rely almost entirely on another for their provision, their safety, their understanding. Um, almost everything, really. Second, children are wholly trusting. They don't question the motives, the integrity, the intelligence, or the ability of those they rely on. They simply trust that they will be provided for. Third, children are mostly undefiled by the things of the world. They've not yet been tempted by all uh, the evil the world has to offer, whether it's drugs, or alcohol, or inappropriate sex, or even, as we're gonna see here, material possessions and things that they can turn into idols. Fourth, children are hopeful and expectant. They believe in those who care for them and expect that care to happen. And finally, children don't know everything. Knowing everything doesn't occur until the teen years, as many of you, I'm sure, know. But more to the point, their intellectual capacity, because it's limited, has not hindered their faith. Okay, so bearing these things in mind, let's look at, the, we're gonna look here at the rest of the text we're, we have today. And we're gonna start with um, this, this, the rich young ruler. Okay, A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and my youth. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, uh, he became. Oop, let me go back there. <clears throat> when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, "How hard it is! Let me catch up to my slide. Uh, it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God." And they who heard it said, "Who can be saved?" But he said, "The things that are impossible with people are, are impossible with people are possible with God." Okay. The first thing I want you to note here is that Jesus replies to this ruler's question by asking him, "Why do you call me good?" And he notes that only God is good, which is this is kind of perplex some people. But Jesus here isn't denying that he's good, nor is he distinguishing between himself and God. Quite the opposite, since he is obviously good in this man's eyes, he's pointing out something a little more ironic. The man clearly does not recognize Jesus' true identity. But if the man, uh, as the man says, if Jesus is good and only God is good, well, he should be able to close that logical loop. Jesus is God. But the man doesn't, he's too focused on himself. Next, Jesus points to the commandments as a means of gaining righteousness, and the man claims to have kept them all. But it's clear from his life that he did not keep at least one. He did not keep the 10th commandment against coveting. He hoards his wealth and probably even envies that of others. You can see that in his life. So Jesus here is pointing out that obtaining true righteousness by means of works or law is simply not possible for this man or any other wealthy person. They're always going to stumble on that pesky 10th commandment. So how do we fix this? Well, Jesus says, sell everything, become dispossessed of your possessions, and you will no longer be possessed by them. You don't covet if you're busy giving your stuff away, right? So to summarize Jesus' reasoning here, first, one must keep the law perfectly in order to gain righteousness and eternal life through the law. And consider James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Second, only God is good or truly righteous, Therefore, nobody can obtain eternal life by following the law because we aren't truly righteous and good the way God is. Romans 3.20 will tell you that. Third, the only way to obtain eternal life is by what? Truly following Jesus requires. But as we've seen, truly following Jesus requires this childlike attitude. So how does this man live up to that standard? Is he vulnerable and dependent? First of all, no, he refused to be vulnerable. His wealth was his safety net, not God. He also refused to trust in God. Again, he trusted in wealth and in all likelihood himself. He was defiled by the world. His love of wealth led him to coveting and to idolatry. He was neither hopeful nor expectant of God. If he truly believed with childlike belief, he would have shed his wealth in joy, as we're seeing it, we'll see this in a later example. But here the text tells us that he went away sad. Indeed, he came... He seemed to take on the negative characteristics of a child, a child who refuses to share, a child who makes it all about himself. And and we're going to come back to him, but we also know, did did he thought he knew everything? I think he did. Okay, but next in the text we see this. Um, and I don't have it on the slides, but if you're following along, we're we're at Luke 18, 28 to 30. And it says, Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left a house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. So we see here Peter's response to the notion that it's impossible for wealthy people to gain the kingdom. He, in essence, said, Yeah, but... We did it. We gave our stuff away, right? So we're good. We're good. Right, Jesus? And Jesus responds that the disciples for their sacrifice will be rewarded in this age. They will be provided for in this age. And indeed, they were. And more importantly, in the age to come. The rewards, indeed, eternal life is far greater than anything they left behind. And then he shares this. He says, then he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the uh, through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the gentiles and he will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon and after they scourged him they will kill him and on the third day he will rise again but the disciples understood none of these things and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them and they did not com- comprehend the things that were said So Jesus here reveals to them how he will make possible the impossible, how he will achieve their salvation apart from the law because it's impossible for them to keep the whole law. By way of the cross, he will cover their sins, and by way of the resurrection, he will usher them into eternity. But they don't get it. They're childlike in more ways than one and not necessarily the kingdom they want it now. Signs of instant gratification, they want the kingdom, they want it now. And they're thinking of a king who will fill himself with power rather than a king who will empty himself of glory, as we know Jesus did from Philippians 2.7. They expected him to deliver immediately, so they're impatient like a child on Christmas morning. <clears throat> and they have this childlike impetuousness, don't ever use a word you can't pronounce, uh, rather than a childlike innocence. All right. So next we come to the blind beggar, and I know I'm kind of going fast through here but there's a lot of stuff to cover so as Jesus was approaching Jericho a blind man was sitting by the road begging now hearing a crowd going by he began to inquire what this was and they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by and he called out saying Jesus son of David have mercy on me those who led the and those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet but he kept crying out all the more son of David have mercy on me and Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came here, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? He said. Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. Okay, so we pick up in these verses important parallels to that account involving the children. First note that those around Jesus try to protect him from the beggar, or more likely protect their own agenda and their own mission. See, they're on kind of a different mission than their Savior. They had business to do, but Jesus, and this guy was, was kind of in the way of that. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. Jesus sees not a strange beggar, but a child of his, right? And Why? Because this, this beggar, as we can see, he demonstrates childlike qualities, First of all, is he vulnerable and dependent on Jesus? Yes, openly so. He begs him, have mercy on me, knowing only Jesus can truly help him. Second, he trusts in Jesus, which is evident from his actions, evident from his calling out. Third, while he was likely defiled by the world in perhaps some or maybe even many ways, he sought after righteousness and and appears to, to even have obtained it through Jesus because he began following him, as the text tells us. Fourth, he was hopeful and expectant. He knew Jesus could and would heal him if he could only gain access to ask. And brothers and sisters, you have that access, just like the blind beggar. Blind Finally, sorry, not sisters, I hope, a know-it-all. He was blind. He, he clearly was not a know-it-all. He was blind. The text tells us he couldn't even comprehend what was happening around him, and he had to ask. So... We see all these qualities in the blind beggar, okay? So now we're going to come to um, our next example. Zacchaeus. Okay, so he entered Jericho, Jesus, and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree in order to see him. For he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. All right. So Zacchaeus has some important parallels and contrasts, I think, as you can see, to some of the others that we're talking about in this section. First of all, as a tax collector, he would have been an outsider to the Jewish system. So he would have been like the blind man in that sense. But unlike the blind man, he would have—he who was obviously poor, Zacchaeus was wealthy. So in this sense, he was like the rich young ruler. Except that unlike the rich young ruler, again, he was an outsider. So the incredible thing about Zacchaeus is that while he stands materially in the position of the rich young ruler, he responds to Jesus in the manner of the blind beggar. And I think in this sense, he might actually provide the most compelling example for, for our lives, because after all, materially speaking, we're more likely closer to that rich ruler than we are the blind beggar. Okay, so let's look at him. First of all, the text says he's a small man. But I want you to see that he's not just small in stature, he's also small in ego. Despite his wealth, he, he knows he is desperately missing something. The rich ruler approaches his dialogue with Jesus, seeking to prove that he has it, right? The rich ruler is like, I've got all I need, whatever it may be. He's looking for Jesus to affirm his obvious salvation, which is built on his works. So his definition is far wide of the mark. It's that which leads to salvation, but he's obviously far wide of the mark. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't know what it is. He just knows he needs it. And he can't get it with his money or his works. And he can only receive it from this man, Jesus. So looking at our childlike factors, is Zacchaeus vulnerable and dependent? Yes, rather obviously so. He knows he has a need he can't fill, and he pursues the one who can. Is he wholly trusting in Jesus? Again, he is. Think about it. All Jesus offers is to stay at his house. And in response, Zacchaeus, without prompting, pledges this great sacrifice of his possessions. He will set aside half of his possessions merely to be with Jesus. Is he mostly undefiled by the world? Well, rather obviously he's not. But here's the thing. He earnestly seeks to be made clean, to be rescued from the world's possessions. Note, he offers to pay back four times what he defrauded anybody. See, a person earnestly seeking salvation and receiving it wants to make everything right. He's defiled, but he wants to pay a just price for that sin to try again, to try and, and make it right. So again, comparing Zacchaeus with the ruler, the ruler didn't want to be undefiled He wanted to live a defiled life and receive eternal life. He wanted God in one hand and his God, his idol, in the other. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, sees how his wealth has defiled him and he wants to separate himself from it. Is he hopeful and expectant? You bet he is. His eager pursuit of Jesus climbing a tree just for a glimpse, that in and of itself speaks volumes. But when Jesus addresses him and asks him to stay with him, he gladly sets, again, he sets his wealth aside, In hope and expectation of what Jesus offers. He has expectation. He knows what Jesus has to give him. Matthew 13, 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That man is Zacchaeus. We've already said he didn't... um, Sorry. And we've already said... um, that he didn't know anything. But he did know what he didn't know, if that makes sense. He knew he needed help to know the ultimate things. And that help wasn't coming from within him or from the world. It only came from Jesus, and he knew this. So finally, we're going to come to disobedient servant. Uh, and unlike the others, this person uh, is the disobedient servant. It's part of a parable that Jesus uses. Partly to demonstrate to his disciples that the coming kingdom and the messianic reign is not as imminent as they expected. So I'm not going to read the whole parable here. You have it up there. Um, but by way of background, a few things. First, it involves a king or a nobleman uh, who's on a long way, who's away on a long journey to receive the kingdom to himself, as the text says. So this is a clear reference to Jesus. And it forms that it would have informed disciples that he would have to first depart from them and return before the kingdom would be set up, which they would have understood had they comprehended earlier what we talked about um, when he was talking about them as he went to Jerusalem. Second, uh, he leaves each of his three servants uh, with an allotment of of minas. The first, uh, ten, the second, five, and the third one. And by the way, a mina or a mina would have been equivalent to about three months' wages. So it's no small amount. And he tells them to do business then with what he left. All right, so the first and second are diligent in their investment, right? And they gain the good returns. But the third, he's a different story. Another came uh, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, By your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you... Know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that everyone who has more, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, um, (coughs) even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. All right, so this parable has a lot to it. But in one sense, it sums up Jesus' teaching to his disciples. You see, each disciple had duties given to him by Jesus, and each was to carry out his responsibilities accordingly. But it's not only addressed to the disciples. It's also addressed to the nation at large and to the world for that matter. See, the people, too, had, and indeed today have, responsibilities. If they did not turn to Jesus, they would be punished. This is thus the reference to the citizens who hated the king and did not want him to rule over them. And Again, we're looking at the third servant here and what, what Jesus is telling us about being childlike or not childlike, as the case may be. So let's look at that. First, is the servant dependent on the king? No. In fact, many argue that his actions demonstrated he didn't even expect the king to return. He had no concern for the desires of the king and could get along just fine without the king in his own mindset. Does a servant put his trust in the king? No, absolutely not. His own words about the king being exacting and stealing what he does not sow, essentially, tell us this. He has no trust. Is a servant defiled by the world? I think there's a good case to be made here. Figure this, that Jesus mentions the citizens hating the king, as I talked about before. The same account here in Matthew ultimately places the servant in the same place as those citizens outside the kingdom. So it's pretty clear that this servant, like his fellow citizens, despised the king and refused to do anything that uh, would have given the king wealth or glory. In other words, he adhered to the desires of the world. It's a pretty good lesson for all of us to check our motivations with respect to those who are over us, right? Is a, is a servant hopeful and expectant? Not at all. In fact, as mentioned, he probably didn't even expect the king to return and certainly placed no hope that the king would return uh, to bless and to reward him. And was he a know-it-all? Um, <clears throat> no. I mean, yes, he was a know-it-all, and no, he didn't not know everything. <laughs> um, he, well, apparently apparently he thought he knew everything because he made all these calculations about the king that just weren't true, right? As he demonstrated by rewarding his, you know, the king demonstrates this by rewarding the faithful servants. The king was the last thing from unfair and exacting. The servant got it all wrong, but he thought he knew better. The bottom line is here, and I'm just going to wrap up with this because I know it's getting late. Jesus gives us in this servant and. The poster child of what a person looks like who does not seek to enter, the motivated and driven by worldly concerns and popularity, untrusting, motivated and driven by worldly concerns and popularity and fame. He's utterly lacking in hope, and not at all expectant that God will deliver. His life is all about him and only him. He's the master. His life is all about him and only him. He's the master of his fate. He's the captain of his soul. And there's one thing that I've heard many times in my previous profession, that uh, they say anyone who represents himself in court has what? A fool for a lawyer. Well, anyone who seeks to captain his own soul is on a ship headed for destruction. But we don't want to be that person. So I ask you this morning to reflect in our discussion questions about how it is that we can become more childlike in our faith, how we can become vulnerable, dependent, Trusting and loving Jesus as a child. So let me pray for us, and then we can release you to your to your groups. Father God, we thank you so much. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think that, and sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think that uh, we can stand up and do all of this on our own. We don't need your help. We don't need to trust in you. We're not vulnerable. We got this. Lord, we have new mercies from you. That you love us so deeply that we have new mercies from you, that you love us so deeply that you reach out to us to carry us and help us through our, our sometimes our own stubbornness, God. And I pray this morning as we, uh, as we reflect on these passages this morning um, that your spirit would be with us, that you would um, lead these discussions this morning, God, and, and in some small way, Lord, do we just help us to draw closer to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's your questions. I think you can read them.